just to review a bit, last week we, um, we saw the crucifixion of Jesus and our focus was um, really on how Jesus was in control of the events uh, that surrounded his crucifixion, even while he hung on the cross. If you were here, I want to kind of just go through, or if you weren't here, go through some of the things we, we looked at as the king hung on the cross. Um, you had that moment where a decree was written on a placard and nailed to the cross. It said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, and it was written by uh, Pilate, who was really writing that as a way to get back at the Jews, to sort of motivated by revenge, yet dictated ultimately by Christ, because the statement had to be there, that Jesus was really, truly the King of the Jews, and he died for them, and not just for them, but for all the nations of the world. The King on the cross fulfilled prophecy while the soldiers divided up his clothing and cast lots for his tunic. The king on the cross provided for his mother by transferring responsibility for her care to to John, the disciple, as he stood at the foot of the cross. The king on the cross fulfilled the final prophecy leading up to his death by the words, I thirst. And the king on the cross completed the work of redemption as he shouted from the cross, it is finished. And the king on the cross fulfilling really his own words that no one would take his life, but that he would lay it down. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now the king has died. Jesus has died on that cross. Yet, as we look in our passage today, his power is no less visible. The way that John writes this, it is written so that we would see that Jesus, although dead, is still very much in power and in control. Because we will see that Jesus conquers death, that he has power over death. We sang about it. This week, we were at a memorial service last Saturday for Ben Amovi's father, Francis Amovi. And I shared at that service this fact that death comes to us all. There's no one that has escaped death. It is an indisputable fact of of history. And even Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, who tried to contemplate the whole meaning of life, came to the conclusion in Ecclesiastes 8.8, no one has power over the spirit to retain the spirit. And no one has power in the day of death. There is no release from that war. And wickedness will not deliver those who are given to it. No one, no one has the power to, to retain their spirit. If the spirit's going to go, it's going to go. You've heard that phrase, it's your time to go, it's your time to go, right? Psalm eighty nine forty eight says, what man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his life from the power of the grave? Selah, which means pause, pause and think about that. Can you deliver yourself from the grave? Hebrews nine twenty seven tells us that it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. The point, all men die. And the universal nature of death stems from the universal nature of sin. Sin brought death into the world. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21, Paul writes, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. 
For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Adam and his sin brought death into the world, but Jesus brings life. And so Romans 5.12 tells us, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. So that's the bad news. <laughs> that's the bad news. But Christians have the good news. The gospel, right? Gospel means good news. So what is the good news? The good news is that Jesus has conquered death, that he has overcome death. And because he's conquered death, then he can promise life, not death to you and to me. As we walked through John's gospel last week to see sort of allusions to the cross, we can do the same thing this week to see allusions to the life that Jesus promised through his victory. And I want to do that. I'm going to take you back to John chapter 3. And we're just going to really just briefly look at, in review, some of the things Jesus said that alluded to this promise of life. Probably one of the most famous ones, John three sixteen to begin with. Don't even need to look it up, do you? For God so loved the world, I hear you saying it, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have, there it is, everlasting life. You see the promise of life there early on in John's gospel promise of life. You move on to John chapter 5, verse 24. Turn to John chapter 5, verse 24. We'll just keep making a right-hand turn, and we'll keep going that way in John's gospel. 524, Jesus said, most surely I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. This is early on in John's gospel, and no one knows what Jesus is talking about. How is believing in him going to bring life? All men die. How am I going to pass death? How do I come into life? You move on into John chapter 6, verses 48 to 50. Jesus calls himself the bread of life. Look at 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. Ah, you scoot on ahead to chapter eight, the end of chapter eight, verses, uh, verse 51. It says, most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. I wonder what Solomon would be thinking if he were sitting here listening to these things, right? His conclusion was, no, we all see death. And he was the wisest man who ever lived. But Jesus is saying something quite to the contrary, If you believe in him, if you keep his word, you shall never see death. Go to chapter 11, verses 25 to 26. This is when Jesus is about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And one final time, look at chapter 14, verse 19. He says this, to his disciples in the upper room a little while longer and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live, you will live also. So Jesus has been promising through John's gospel. John has made sure to highlight this fact. Jesus promises life. But now what's happened to Jesus? He's just died. How can someone who's dead promise life? That's the question of the world, isn't it? How do you, how do you follow uh, someone who's died? 
how can you listen to the promises of this man if he has died on the cross? Well, what I want you to see today in our passage, that Jesus will manifest his power over death through these three scenes. John gives us three scenes. We're going to take a close look at his dying. He's not off the cross yet. We just left him there. We're going to look at what John says about his dying. We're going to look at what he says about his burial and about his resurrection. These three things today. So turn to John chapter 19 once again. We're going to cover a big chunk today, verses 31 of chapter 19, all the way to verse 10 of chapter 20. Look at verse 31. Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not, not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out, and the other disciple, and were going to the tomb. So they ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple whom came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be in your word today, to open the living word of God. And for the opportunity to read this account, this eyewitness account of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And God, I just pray that we wouldn't fall into some attitude of, I've been there and heard this story a thousand times, but that you would help us to see the deep, rich spiritual truths that are here. 
the eyewitness testimony that Jesus did, in fact, die, that he was buried, and that he rose again. Because in those things, he overcame death. Oh, God, we want to glorify you today. Would you help us by the power of your spirit to see your truth boldly, clearly, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's take a look at his dying first. We ended last week at verse um, 30 of chapter 19, where he gave up his spirit. Um, But that's all we read. And if it had ended there, we could go, well, I guess that means Jesus died. (laughs) And, And then the next chapter could start, and we could say, see, he's in the tomb. But John gives us some amazing descriptions of all the things that take place while they're dealing with the death here. And while he puts these things here, what we can see is that Jesus is still very much in control. Now, this was preparation day, as it says there in verse 31. Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. They had been preparing for the Sabbath. They had been preparing for even the Passover, which is the meaning behind it's a high day. Because the Passover was that once-a-year celebration around March, uh, April. And it was coming up. In fact, they would have the big Passover feast. And Jesus and his disciples already celebrated that. We talked about that a few weeks ago. They, they celebrated that on Thursday night because from the region they were from in Israel, the Jews celebrated that um, differently at a different time than the Jews in this uh, region because it would begin at sundown rather than sun up. And so here's what the Jews, the the leaders of Israel, are concerned about. That these bodies would be hanging on the cross during the high day. As sundown is approaching. As Sabbath is approaching. And so they ask um, Pilate to, to, to do something because they're worried about defilement. Which is silly, isn't it? Because these are the guys that plotted Jesus' murder. And now they want to go be holy before the Lord and celebrate Passover and not get defiled by anything. (laughs) And I think what they're looking at is Deuteronomy 21, verse 22 and 23. It says this, if a man has committed a sin deserving of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, so Jesus was hung on a tree, that's what they're identifying here, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance for he who is hanged is accursed of God. And that is true. Um, we, we looked at that as well. To be hung on a tree is a curse, and Jesus has become a curse for us. He was sinless, but the sins of man are being placed upon him so he could take the curse, and God could judge the, the curse, right, that way. And the very symbol of that curse is upon his head, even in the crown of thorns. So in their minds, to leave the bodies exposed overnight on these crosses would just defile the land, and that would just sort of negate all the, uh, the uh, purifying preparation that they had been going through, purifying things outwardly. Like, ooh, I don't want to touch a dead body or see a dead body, you know. I have to start all this purifying process over again. Remember, that's why they didn't dare enter um, Pilate's praetorium because they were worried about being defiled. That's just a long process. I mean, who wants to go through that again? So to avoid that, they go and ask Pilate to break the legs of those on the cross that they might be taken away. Um, Breaking the legs of crucified criminals was an actual Roman procedure. It was known as curifragium, and they would use an iron mallet to just smash the legs of those men hanging on the cross, and so through 
obvious trauma and additional blood loss and the inability then to lift yourself to get the breath of air you need to survive, uh, they would die. It would hasten their death. And interestingly, in spite of the thousands, thousands and thousands of people crucified by the Romans from the third century to AD 337, we only have um, one skeletal remain that has been found of a Roman crucifixion. We know in history, through historians, Josephus and Eusebius, we have those historians that document crucifixions. We know it took place and it was banned by Emperor Constantine, but we don't find many remains. Um, But there is one, it was found in 1968, and it does show the ankle with a spike still through it. They they couldn't remove it, so they they just bury that guy with the spike still in it. But what's interesting about this particular specimen is that it shows evidence of curifragium because of the condition of the, the bones in the leg have been smashed by one single blow. As so we know that that was an actual um, sort of procedure that the Romans would use in instances like this where they needed to hasten death because, as I mentioned before, people could linger on for days on the cross, two, three days on the cross, But what the Jews want to do is they want to hasten the death so they can get them off the cross and get them buried because it's it's the Passover after all, sundown, Sabbath, right? We've got these things. We don't want defilement going on. So they go to Pilate. And amazingly, Pilate agrees to this. Remember, Pilate and the Jews, they're not getting along here. Now look at verse 32. It says, Then the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. Verse 33. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Now, this is very interesting. The soldiers break the legs of the other criminals, but they they come to Jesus, they see that he has died, so they don't break his legs. John is the only one that mentions this detail of the gospel writers. Matthew, Mark, Luke don't. John mentions this detail. And this is going to be really significant in in a moment. I want you to see it in a moment, so I'm going to come back to it. So it says in verse 34, because that they thought he was dead, they did something else to Jesus. They didn't break his legs, but they did this in verse 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. Now, the Roman executioners who were in charge of, of the entire execution process on a cross here were experts at determining death. They had to. They had to be. And it appears here that Jesus has died because we saw, well, he gave up the spirit. And as they walk up to break the legs of these other guys, they come to him. And it looks like outwardly, well, Jesus has died. And so amazingly, they hold off on breaking his legs. Instead, they stick a spear into his side and blood and water immediately come out. Now, much has been made. I have read tons of material about the significance of the blood coming out, the significance of the water coming out, and no doubt there is some, and I'll share one of them with you because I do think it is significant. I think it's symbolic. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1, it says this, In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. This is a prophecy. There's going to be a day when a fountain will be opened, and the fountain is going to provide two things. It's going to help atone for sin, and it's going to help purify. 
Do you see that? Something for sin and something for uncleanness. So what could atone for sin? What atones for sin even all throughout the Old Testament? It is blood, right? Well, what do we use for all the purification processes even in the Old Testament? Water. And so the fountain that needs to be open is required for both sin and uncleanness. And what fountain can offer blood and water but Jesus, right? And certainly that is true. We see blood and water come out. But here's what I want you to see. John does not highlight the blood and water as significant prophetically. He has been doing that. Oh, this is this fulfilled scripture, and he gives us a scripture. He's going to do it two times coming up. This fulfilled scripture, and this scripture. He doesn't say that. This is what he follows it up with. Look at verse 35. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. What John is doing here is declaring himself as the eyewitness to the death of Jesus. What you are challenged with today, you and I, is not whether or not blood and water came out of Jesus. What you are challenged today with is, did Jesus even die? Certainly you've heard these theories Well, if he rose from the dead and the tomb was empty and that's a historical fact, you know, maybe he didn't die. Maybe he fell into a coma. Uh, Maybe the coolness of the tomb woke him, you know, woke him up. And so he's able to unwrap himself from all the linens, roll the heavy stone away, and walk several miles into Emmaus on crucified feet. Absolutely makes sense. Yet you hear those things, don't you? What John is writing is to say, I saw him die. Yes, fulfill prophecy. Yes, it fulfills those things. But what he wants you to know is he saw him die. Where is John? Remember from last week? Where is John at this moment? He's at the foot of the cross. You just go back to verses 25, 26. You see that he is at the foot of the cross. It's after Jesus dies that the soldiers move them afar off and the women are are, are looking afar off. But they're right there. And John is close enough to see that when they pierce his side, not only blood comes out, but water comes out. He is dead. He knows he's dead. He's close enough. If they had been moved far off, you'd probably barely even see the fact that they're lifting up a spear to his side. You'd be wondering what they're doing. Maybe there's a sponge on that spear. Maybe they're giving him more drink. What's going on? He is right there. And so he says, I wrote this because I'm an eyewitness. I have seen. I am testifying to the truth. And not just the fact that I'm testifying, but I testify so that you would what? Believe. Remember, that's the theme of John's gospel. All Everything John is writing is that you may believe. His, his theme verse is coming up. Verse, t- uh, verse 31 of chapter 20. Just peek at it again. 31 of chapter 20. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. In believing in his death, we have life. That's what John, John is saying. In believing in his death, you will have life life. Incredible. Now, what is the blood and water then? Well, physiologically speaking, medically speaking, several things could be going on here. You have the pericardial sac that is around the heart that contains water-like fluid, and in serious trauma and injury that can fill up with blood. And certainly, executioners, in wanting to determine death beyond a shadow of a doubt, 
under pain of death for themselves, knew what they were doing with that spear. To pierce that pericardial sac, that blood and water might come out. Said, oh yeah, verified, he's, he's dead. That has come out. There's been all kinds of things that have been presented to say, oh, you know, perhaps his heart completely bursts under the weight of taking on the wrath of God, being forsaken by him. Whatever the specific is, what it was done, the reason it was done by the Roman soldier was to verify death. And John knows that. And he says, and I was right there and I saw it. Jesus died. And I want that to be known here so that you may believe. Believe what? That Jesus died. So when you get that, when people say, well, maybe he didn't die, John writes to verify. No, he died. I was right there. I saw it. Now look at verse 36. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Oh, here comes the scripture being fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. Now there are scriptures being fulfilled, but look at the ones that John highlights. Not one of his bones shall be broken. Psalm 34, 20, he guards all his bones. Not one of them is broken. That is a messianic psalm, a prophecy. And so this is what I want you to think about. Jesus, in giving up his spirit, okay, he did that. When he did, Jesus fulfilled prophecy because he did it at the right time so that they would not break his legs. He is fulfilling prophecy even after he's dead. Right? Because they've come around to break legs. In fact, think about this. What if he was crucified alone? Would they have come around to break legs if he had given up his spirit at all? He was crucified with two other guys who obviously were awake, who obviously needed their legs broken. Right? So you've got two other guys. Well, we have to go break this guy's leg. Break that. That looks like Jesus is dead, though. So you even have the fact that two other guys were crucified with Jesus to help substantiate this. This this is amazing. (laughs) Prophecy being fulfilled beyond the grave. (laughs) Had he lingered on, the soldiers would have um, just broken the legs of Jesus along with the other two. But he gave up his spirit when he needed to. Another significant thing to think about is that we've been talking about Jesus being the Passover lamb, right? John the Baptist said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Passover lamb. And the Passover lamb had a special requirement. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, we have the requirements about the lamb and the the, the supper and all that stuff. And it says this, in one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. You don't break the bones of the Passover lamb. Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb. His bones are not broken. Incredible. He's the true Passover lamb. And so he says these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. If those other criminals could have, um, you know, retained their, their spirit, um, this would not have happened. Right? They, they lingered on because it was the divine will of God the Father so that their legs would be broken, but Jesus would clearly be dead. And they would testify to that by this spear test. Incredible. And then it would fulfill prophecy. And John is right there to witness it all. Not just that prophecy. Look at verse 37, another prophecy. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. This is a prophecy of Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. 
And it says, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. John lines up that prophecy, which is another um, messianic prophecy that really will have its ultimate fulfillment at the second coming of Christ, when the remnant of Israel looks upon Jesus and recognizes the risen Savior, the one who they rejected, their king. And Revelation 1-7 alludes to that. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. Now, it's certainly true that the Roman executioner, the Roman centurion and the soldiers there, they're the ones that did the piercing, right? They did that. But they're just carrying out the orders of Pilate. The ones that, that hold the responsibility for his piercing are the Jews. You go back to John chapter 1, you think about, he came to his own, his own did not receive him. They rejected him. He came to them, and they rejected him. And so it will be them, and they will look on him as if it were they who pierced him because they're culpable, they're responsible. So Jesus exhibits his divine power beyond the grave, over death, by controlling even the details of his dying. But here's what even is, is more amazing. Okay, stay with me. He also controlled the circumstances of his burial. Now, you and I can do that to an extent today, can't we? I can leave in my will or to my kids to say, well, you know, I like to be buried, you know, um, you know, in, by that tree, right? You know, uh, my grandmother, I went to bury her two years ago, and we, we, we had no question. We knew exactly what her will was, right? We knew she wanted to be buried next to her husband on this certain plot of ground. She had paid for it. She, she was ready to be buried. You don't have that right when you're a criminal hanging on a tree. In fact, you didn't have a right to a burial at all. You couldn't be up there going, hey, when this is all over, can you make sure that I'm, you know? No. In fact, what they would do is leave you there. They'd leave you there and let the vultures eat your flesh away. And then they'd take you down and they'd throw you into a rubbish heap or into the river, which is why we don't find many remains. Criminals weren't buried that way. They weren't buried. So what is Jesus going to do? Because he's died as if he were a criminal. He's on the cross. What's he going to do? This is, this is absolutely amazing. Look at verse 38. After this, so after he's died, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. Joseph was like many of the other rulers. There were other rulers that were secret disciples of Jesus because um, they, they feared the Jews. In, in John chapter 12, verse 42, we were told that. It says, nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. So what, what, they, what he's saying, and John doesn't look favorably upon those guys, right? He says they're believers, but they weren't confessors. They weren't, they weren't letting everybody know, I follow a Jesus. They did, but they did it secretly. That's John's opinion of these kind of people. They're, they're believers and they're not confessors. But Joseph here, who you know, may have feared worldly loss while Jesus was alive, all of a sudden, right, while Jesus now is dead, becomes bold. 
he becomes courageous. He goes to Pilate and he asks for the body of, of Jesus. Now I want you to see how the other gospel writers describe this guy, Joseph of Arimathea. In Luke chapter 23, verses 50 to 51, Luke says this, Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision and deed, their decision and deed to crucify Jesus. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. So while he was a good and just man who disagreed with the decisions of the council, uh, he lacked courage. He lacked courage. He couldn't confess Jesus uh, publicly, but it is a trait that all of a sudden comes upon him just at this time. Not while Jesus is alive, while he's dead. Not while the disciples are around for more support, but why they've scattered. How does that happen? How does this man suddenly become courageous? Look at Mark's description of him in chapter 15, verse 43. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Uh, let me tell you what's happening here. The Lord has moved in the heart of Joseph of Arimathea to become courageous and take that body. There, there's no other explanation. There's, no, there's, there's none. There's no disciples. There's no Jesus. There's no Messiah. In fact, he is dead. I've just seen it. I guess I'll just take the body. They just want to honor him right now. They thought he was a good man. So you just, just give me the, the body. Now, there is one note to think about here because Pilate doesn't just hand in the body. He doesn't just go, oh, yeah, sure, no problem, take the body. Pilate needs to verify Jesus' death. He's got to make sure that he has indeed died. This is part of the whole procedure. This is why the centurion did what he did. In Mark, John doesn't account for this, but in Mark's gospel, in chapter 15, verse 44, he says this, Pilate marveled that he was already dead. This is right after Joseph asks for the body. He marveled that he was already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Do you see this? Even Joseph's coming to him and asking for the body is another evidence that Jesus was truly dead because Pilate said, what? He couldn't be dead already. These guys linger on for days. Send me the centurion. The centurion comes in and says, no, no, he died. He's like, well, yeah, but it hasn't been a lot. I mean, have you given enough time, right? Like, did you kick him to see if he wiggled? You know what I'm saying? He's like, is he really dead? And that centurion better get it right because if not, he's going to die. He'll replace Jesus on that cross. But he found out from the centurion, he's pleased with the answer. He's pleased with the evidence, no doubt, he was shared the evidence. Well, I pierced his, you know, blood and water came out. Yeah, he's, he's dead. He grants the body to Joseph. Now, I hope you're keeping track of all these proofs of the death of Jesus. We're going to look at more of it when we get to the, res the resurrected Christ next week. Yes, his resurrection is spoken of here, but we don't see the resurrected Christ. In the passage we're looking at today, we don't see resurrected Jesus. We will next week. But here, we're just getting the evidence. We're giving, getting the evidence. No, he, he died. He truly died. John is giving this to us that we might believe. Do not doubt the risen, resurrected Savior. Look at verse 39. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. So Joseph wasn't alone. He did have some uh, help there. He did have someone, in, a partner in courage. And it's Nicodemus. And we know from Nicodemus that he wasn't courageous himself because he came to Jesus at night. John even says it here. 
He was the one that came to Jesus in John chapter uh, 3 that told Jesus, we know that you're a teacher from God because no one can do the things you do unless he were sent from God. He's the one that Jesus told needed to be born again, born from above, right? And, and it confused Nicodemus. He didn't understand uh, that. So it appears, though, that after Jesus shared with him what needed to be done, that Nicodemus became a follower. He, he became a believer, again, like Joseph, secretly for fear of the Jews. And so he comes along with Joseph. He brings the myrrh and the aloes to prepare the body for uh, burial. So that's why he's coming along with Joseph. Look at verse 40. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. So John has given us the, uh, the details that everything was done exactly like the Jews do it. They did not embalm or mummify their, um, their, their dead like the Egyptians. They didn't remove internal organs like the Egyptians. They laid out these strips of linen. They covered them with these spices, myrrh and aloe. They covered the body with that. And then they wrapped the body entirely in these things, um, leaving the head for a moment, so that they could suppress the stench of decay for a while. Now, you want to keep in mind that Joseph, Nicodemus, the women who will come later, none of them are thinking, oh, better leave some room and not do these tight because of the resurrection. No, no one knows anything about any resurrection. Jesus has died. They're wrapping him up because he's died. They're putting the spices because he has died. He's going to decay. It's a way of um, putting that off for as long as you, you could. It's also a way to honor him. So they're preparing him entirely for burial, not for resurrection. That's why these details are here. No, they did everything just like the Jewish custom. That's important. John is giving us detail, eyewitness account information. Now look at verse 40, verses 41 and 42. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. So John's the only one that tells us a garden uh, was nearby with a tomb. You remember I showed you pictures of the two uh, possibilities of the location of, of his crucifixion and death. The outdoor one with the, the, the mountain sort of hillside that looks like a skull has a garden tomb that's 200 yards away. So that's why some people think, oh, it's the garden tomb. That's the location. Uh, the other one is all indoors underneath that hideous monstrosity, the Church of the Sepulchre. It's just so gaudy, you know. But it's all underneath. So not only is the, the skull of the rock, Golgotha, there, but the tomb is there too. And it could have been a garden at one point, but you would see nothing of such things today. So aesthetically speaking, people like the outdoor one better, right? It just, it just looks better. It's greater for the Facebook photos, okay? It doesn't really matter. The point is, we know that a garden was nearby. There was a tomb nearby. It's preparation day. And the details given it because, because for, for Joseph and Nicodemus, uh, they're under the gun. They're motivated by, by trying to get Jesus down before sundown because they're also preparing for the Sabbath, right? They can't be working on the Sabbath. They can't be touching a dead body on the Sabbath. They're going to have to go purify themselves. Does that make sense? So their motivation is let's get him down. Let's get him in a tomb. And that's why this detail is given. They laid Jesus in that one because it was uh, close by. Now, Matthew does tell us that the tomb itself was owned by Joseph that it was a new tomb, that he, he had that tomb. Um, he, it belonged to, to him. 
But here's, what, here's a more significant reason for Jesus to be buried before sundown. That's their motivation. That's a human motivation. What's God's motivation? Why did Jesus give up the ghosts when he gave up the ghosts? Remember what he said back in John chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Three days I'll raise it up. What day does he rise for the dead? Sunday. It's Friday. Boy, I got to get in the ground. <laughs> right? Jesus is on a timeline even though he's dead. <laughs> he has got to get in the ground because he prophesied that. He gave up the ghost when he gave the ghost so that he would be buried that day. And who, who unwittingly helped that? The Jews, right? Well, it's preparation day. We better get him off the cross. They would have been, they'd been way better off if they just let him hang there because they could have disproved everything. See, he wasn't the Messiah. He's still there. Where's your resurrection? But they are the ones that cause it. Well, we better get him down. Oh, well, now, now, he's going to a, now he's going to the burial. Incredible. Because of the preparation day, they demand to have the legs of these people broken before the preparation day ended. Yet, here we go. Jesus is being pulled down off that. He's going to uh, not have his bones broken. He's going to be placed into an actual tomb. He's not going to be eaten by vultures. He's not going to be eaten by wild animals. He's not going to be dumped in a heap or a water, a uh, river of water. He's going to go into a tomb and a new tomb in which no one has been buried. Now, that is one prophecy by Jesus. He said, destroy this temple, and he spoke of himself, uh, because John tells us that in the next verse. And three days later, I'll raise it up. But there's a more important one, and it's in Matthew chapter 12, verse 4. Not more important, but it's significant. Matthew 12, 40. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Do you remember when Jesus said that? Now, listen. This gives people heartache, and I just want, I, I bring this one up to, to put you at rest, to put you at rest, because we go, oh, he said three days and three nights. If Jesus is being buried Friday night, he's going to spend Friday night and Saturday night, but he's going to raise early in the morning. Oh, it's only two nights. Oh, so, uh, something went wrong. He got this, he got this bit wrong. People will come to you and say, oh, well, look, it says three days and three nights. Where's that other night? Don't you love getting those things? This should not be a problem for us at all. Because the Jews looked at any part of a day as a day. Many times you read 40 days and 40 nights. Many times it's meant to be just any period of time longer than a month. It's not that they're counting. It was exactly 40 days and 40 nights. It's a period of time. And people, I have tried, I've seen all kinds of crazy calculations for people to move the time of his crucifixion and the date of his crucifixion to fit it into three 24-hour days. I've got to get three days. I've got to get three nights. Listen, you don't need to do that. You don't need it. Let me give you an example. Esther chapter 4. We went through Esther last year or the year prior. You might remember this. Famous scene. Esther is going to call all the Jews to fast. In Esther chapter 4, verse 16, Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. So it's the same as saying three nights to three days, right? My maids and I will fast likewise, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Famous scene, right? Bold move by Esther. So she is stated to fast for three days uh, and to not eat night or day. 
You go to chapter 5, verse 1, when the time has ended, and this is what it says. Now, it happened on the third day that Esther put on her robe, and she went about. Not the third night. The third day. Why? Because it's three days. Any part of a day is a day for the Jews. So don't worry about three 24-hour periods. That's not what Jesus needs. He just needs three days. He needs to be buried on the actual day of his crucifixion, Friday, in order to rise on Sunday, and the Jews themselves unwittingly accommodate Jesus' own prophecy that he'll raise up on the third day. In addition, were not for Joseph, he would not be buried in a tomb at all. One last point. Joseph's courageous, noble act here fulfills just one more prophecy. It's Isaiah 53, verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. The Jews wanted Jesus' death to be uh, with the wicked. That's why he was up there on the cross. That's why they hated the king of the Jews' statement there, because they thought he was a, a blasphemer, a false prophet. They wanted him to die as a criminal. They had made him a criminal, to die with the other criminals. So they wanted him to die as such. But... Here, it says that he was with the rich. How could that be? How could Jesus die with the wicked but be with the rich at his death? Well, Matthew's gospel tells us something extra about Joseph of Arimathea. Chapter 27, verse 57. Now, when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph. What kind of man? He's a rich man. He's a rich man. And so he's buried in a rich man's Tomb. He's with the rich at his death. He's with Joseph and Nicodemus. Incredible. Just, just amazing. How do, you, how do you fabricate all these details? You don't. You can't. So the Jews need to be prepared for the Passover and the Sabbath and Joseph's desire to honor Jesus you know, with a decent burial. Both of those things serve the decrees of Christ. Yet there's another example of his power over death, even beyond the grave. And it's obviously the ultimate proof of his power over death, and it's his resurrection. So let's look at his resurrection now, beginning in verse, uh, chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Sunday, the first day of the week, would from that point on be set aside to commemorate the resurrection of, of Jesus. It would come to be known as the Lord's Day. You can read about that in Acts. We don't have time to do that today. Uh, John here notes that only Mary Magdalene set out to the new tomb. He's the only woman that he mentions. But when we read the other Gospels, we find out there were various other women that came to the tomb as well. Among them, you had that other Mary, Mary the uh, mother of James and Joseph. Remember that? Standing at the foot of the cross, James the Less. You had Mark's Gospel adds uh, Salome, who is John's mother probably. Uh, Luke mentions just certain other women but then later mentions a woman named jo Joanna who was there, who according to Luke 8.3 was the wife uh, of Chusa, who was Herod's steward. So she became a follower of Jesus. So you have other women that were there. But in any case, none of the women there are mentioned at all by John. Only Mary Magdalene. And so he mentions here that Mary went to the tomb while it was still dark. The other gospels don't mention that. They say at dawn, at least in Matthew's gospel, in Mark's he said when the sun had risen, in Luke's gospel, it was very early in the morning. Here's why I'm saying this, because I think a lot of times we mess up the chronology, uh, chronology here of the women and, and they're going back and forth. Because evidently, the women all plan to go together. But Mary 
probably went a little bit early before them because she went with still dark. Now, this is significant. Stay with me on this. She arrives first. She sees that the stone has been rolled away. Now, it's quite possible the other woman could come up at this point and see the same thing. But Mary's already hightailing it the other way. This is very, very important when you read the other Gospels because it doesn't quite make sense unless you read this. She runs back to the, uh, tell the other disciples. Look at verse 2. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. So she runs back to give the report to the disciples. Now, this is very important and will be more important for next week. Because Mary has run back to tell the disciples she is going to miss out on something. She's not present with all the other women at the tomb when two angels appear to them. You remember when the angels would come and appear and speak to the women? Mary is not with them. That will help you make sense of John's gospel. And that's what John is highlighting. You already have Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You, we know, but let me tell you what happened to Mary. Oh yeah, Mary. She had a different experience than the other women. She was the first one to meet Jesus. These other women were there to hear a message from the angels. In fact, Matthew's gospel says this. This is the message. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So that's the message Mary misses. Mark virtually says, says the same message in his um, description. Luke adds that famous question, why do you seek the living among the dead? Remember that? Luke adds that little bit, but basically they're virtually the same message. So here's what's amazing. While the, the fears of the other women have been, been stilled by that message from the angels, Mary's fear that the body of Jesus might have been stolen is still very much alive. She still very much fears that. She doesn't know the truth. The other women um, are separate from her. Now, we won't see the calming of Mary's fears until next week, so you have to wait for that. Um, but she's going to be the first to witness the resurrected Christ. Instead, what John does is he shifts the narrative to the reaction of Peter and John. Look at verses 3 to 5. Peter, therefore, went out and went to the other... Uh, so Peter, therefore, went out and the other disciple uh, and were going to the tomb. So remember, she came to Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved... That's John. So it's Peter and John. Verse 4, so they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. So John's faster. <laughs> so they have a foot race. John wins, but fear prevents him from entering the tomb. He only just peeks in. And what does he see? He sees the linen cloths that were used to wrap Jesus' entire body just lying there. That's what he sees. He didn't see a body. He just gives us, again, this is eyewitness account. I just saw cloths lying there. But then Simon Peter, look what he does, verses 6 to 7. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. So Peter, impetuous as always, runs straight on in. And he also sees the linen cloths, but he also notes the handkerchief that would have been the face cloth to wrap Jesus' face. It is folded together in a place by itself. Now, these are seemingly maybe minor details, but they provide some incredible proof of Christ's power over death. Do you remember the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead? In John chapter 11, verse 44, this is the description. He who had died came out, 
bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, loose him and let him go. When he was resurrected, he came out completely bound. In fact, he needed help. You know, loose him. He's not going to get out of that on his own. Yet here, here, right, we see a different scene. Jesus' tomb shows a completely different scene. There's the presence of the grave clothes, but there's no body. And what this does is it provides evidence that, first of all, couldn't have been some kind of grave robbers. What kind of grave robbers would take the time to unwrap Jesus' body, right? Let's fold that handkerchief nice and neat up there, and right? After you've overpowered guards, and maybe more guards are going to come, they would have taken the time to do that. The presence of the grave clothes provide or prove the story concocted by those uh, Jewish leaders later on is false. The disciples took the body because they wouldn't have dishonored Jesus in that way either. They would have just taken off with him. What's startling about this whole scene was that there was no body at all, but the linen wrappings were lying there as if the body had just passed through them. Just they're there and the body just went through. And that's the glorified body of Jesus that we're going to see later. Apparently, the ability to pass through objects. He's going to appear within rooms, right? Just out of nowhere. And so the linen cloths, there's, no, there's nothing. Just whoop, right there. But I like the added touch about the handkerchief, don't you? The handkerchief? Oh, but I'll take that and lay that right here. Boom. <laughs> Amazing details here. Look at verses 8 to 10. Then the other disciple whom came to the tomb first, that's John, went in also. And he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. John enters as well now, taking in the scene that Peter sees. He believes. He believes. We as yet have not seen the risen Jesus here in this account, and we won't contemplate those passages until next week, but we've been given sufficient evidence of his rising from the dead, haven't we? The evidence was enough for for John to believe. It should be enough for us to believe. The tomb is empty. It couldn't keep him. The stone was rolled away. It couldn't keep him. The linen cloths were removed. They couldn't keep him. Do you believe? John believed. And while he believed, it says, as yet he did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. He, He wasn't aware of the fact of the truth of scripture proclaiming that. Of Old Testament scripture, that's what we're talking about, right? John would, there's not the New Testament, he's thinking Old Testament. Well, I didn't know there's an Old Testament passage about Jesus rising from the dead. He does later. But here's one such example, Psalm 1610. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. The Holy One, Jesus, could not be corrupted and waste away. He had to defeat death, and the resurrection is the knockout punch on that. Because it's through the resurrection, the defeat of death, that many will be made alive. Let me take you back to that first passage in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 22, that we looked at the beginning. Paul writes, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. And so now we, we live in victory simply awaiting the end. And what's at the end? A few verses later, verses 24 to 26. I love this. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, 
when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. He has conquered death. Death has no power over you. He has overcome that. But when will he destroy it? When he comes again, death and Hades will be destroyed. Do people still die today? They do. They do. You still die today. But death will be, will be completely annihilated later. But he's conquered death because it's through his death you have life. Isn't that incredible? Next week, we're going to take a look at the risen, resurrected Savior, Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the amazing eyewitness testimony of John here. The details so precise that prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus did in fact die, that he was in fact buried, and that he did in fact raise from the dead. Oh God, we are so, we're so thankful for that truth. Lord, we only just grazed the, the tip of the iceberg so far, but next week, Lord, we will see the resurrected Jesus Christ. We will see his face. We will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is alive. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be bold when we proclaim that truth, that we will not allow the um, mockers, the skeptics of the world to uh, present some sort of false story that they've conjured up in their mind, swoon theories and all these different things. They um, are, are, are just a shameless effort to mask, to hide the um, inevitable truth that you are alive and you will hold them accountable. Oh God, we are so thankful for this truth today, Lord. May we just go boldly today and this week, Lord, in the joy of the Lord, knowing that you are alive and that through your death and resurrection, we too have life. Thank you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.